0: Now, in the very first episode of this podcast, I said, when you look at the assassination of President Kennedy, you have to focus on three things. First thing, who wanted President Kennedy eliminated? Who had the power to cover it up? And who benefited from it? And the person that benefited from it the most was Lyndon Johnson, the 36th President of the United States. Now, I was in one of these uh, conferences in Dallas, Kennedy conferences and the speaker asked the question and he said how many people believe President Johnson had prior knowledge of the assassination and of about 300 people in the room about 80 percent including my wife raised their hands. Now I did not raise my hand because I've never seen any substantial evidence that would point to that but I was really astounded that 80 percent of the people thought that he had prior knowledge of this. And my own mother, from the very day that it happened, the first thing she said, Lyndon Johnson's behind this, and she never wavered on this her entire life. Now, I talked to a Dallas police officer who was at Parkland Hospital when they brought President Kennedy in, and he said when he saw Lyndon Johnson, his face was ashen, and it looked like he was about to have a heart attack, which would have been number three. So what is Lyndon Johnson's role in this? Is he the mastermind behind this? Absolutely not. But he goes along with the plan that's already been put in place. He has no choice. President Kennedy was eliminated because he could not be bought or controlled. Lyndon Johnson's already been bought, and he can be controlled. And they would have no trouble with taking him out. He didn't have any problem taking Kennedy out. They would have had no problem taking Lyndon Johnson out. So his involvement in this begins immediately after the assassination because some of these decisions had to have come from him and it leads you right to Lyndon Johnson. The illegal moving of the president's body from Dallas is where this begins. And this decision had to come from Lyndon Johnson. The Secret Service are not going to do this on their own. It's like I said before in a previous podcast, if you're not involved in a conspiracy, why on earth would you do anything to make it look like you were involved in a conspiracy? President Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson are complete opposite. President Kennedy was born rich. Lyndon Johnson grew up dirt poor. Lyndon Johnson grew up in the Depression. President Kennedy said he didn't even know there was a depression until he read about it in college. Kennedy went to Schoet and Harvard, in 1947, as a journalist for Scripps News, he covered the first session of the U.N. in San Francisco. Lyndon Johnson went to Texas State Teachers College and taught elementary school. President Kennedy was a millionaire before he went into politics. Lyndon Johnson became a millionaire because of politics. President Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson are not friends. Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson don't even want to be in the same room together. When President Kennedy won the Democratic nomination in 1960, he knew he was going to be in a close election. He knew he needed the state of Texas to win the election, and that's when he asked Lyndon Johnson to be on the ticket with him as vice president. When Robert Kennedy finds out about this, he demands to his brother that he take Johnson off the ticket. Kennedy calls Johnson back and tells him, no, you're not on the ticket. The next day, Kennedy changes his mind. This time, he sends Robert Kennedy to tell Lyndon Johnson, you're back on the ticket. This time, Johnson refuses. Kennedy finally calls Johnson back and talks him into accepting the nomination for vice president. So there's no friendship here between these three. Lyndon Johnson said they treated him like a $2 whore. Lyndon Johnson was never going to be President of the United States. He has already had two major heart attacks. And on January the 22nd, 1973, he will have his third and final heart attack and he will die at the age of 64. He was not going to be on the ticket with President Kennedy in 1964. In the fall of 1963, when President Kennedy's staff had their first meeting for the 64 election, Nobody from Lyndon Johnson's staff was involved in that meeting. Lyndon Johnson and his top aide, a man named Bobby Baker, are under investigation. On the morning of the assassination, November 22, 1963, Texas businessman Don Reynolds testified in secret before the Senate Rules Committee. He told the committee about $100,000 dollars Bribe given to Lyndon Johnson for his help in securing a contract for General Dynamics. Bobby Baker, Lyndon Johnson's top aide, is also in, under investigation for bribery and running a call girl operation out of Lyndon Johnson's office, which he was doing. And he was running this out of this men's club that he owned in Washington, D.C., this private men's club for congressmen and senators, And it was called the Quorum Club. And he was providing these people with call girls, prostitutes, all the way up to the President of the United States. He introduced Kennedy to this woman named Ellen Romish. And she was being investigated by the FBI. They believed that she was some kind of Russian or East German spy. And she was eventually deported from the country. But she also had an affair with uh, Mr. Integrity Gerald Ford, of course. And Life Magazine was about to expose all this in their November 29th issue. Of course, on November 22nd, President Kennedy is assassinated, and after that, I talked to a man who worked at Life magazine, and he said that the man who owns Life magazine, the man's name was Henry Luce, they did not run this story because Henry Luce said, we cannot kill two presidents in one week. Now, of course, when Lyndon Johnson becomes president, The investigations concerning him end. And, of course, they they did have to throw Bobby Baker under the bus. Somebody has to go. And Lyndon Johnson was asked, the question he was asked, you were the Democratic majority leader of the Senate. Why would you give up a powerful position like that to become a, a vice president where you have no power? And Lyndon Johnson said, well, we've had six presidents to die in office, and three of them have been in this century. So let's think about this scenario. Lyndon Johnson arrives at Parkland Hospital, finds out that President Kennedy has been killed, and in 30 minutes comes up with a plan to turn the body over to the US military so a fraudulent autopsy can be performed. And of course, that is preposterous and that is not what happened. This plan is already in place and he has no choice but to accept this plan and to go along with this. So Lyndon Johnson tells his military commanders that this could be the beginning of a Russian attack on the United States. And this is a bad mistake on Lyndon Johnson's part. But when he gets back to the field, he keeps the plane on the ground for an hour to be sworn in as president, even though he's been told that when the president dies, the vice president automatically becomes president. No swearing in is necessary. This is in case the president dies during a war or a national emergency. You don't have to have to track down a federal judge to swear the president in, which is exactly what they did in a national emergency. So they quickly have to abandon this Russian idea, because if this gets out and people start to believe it, then there is going to be a war with Russia. So the next thing they come up with is uh, Castro did it. Well, that's not going to work either, because now we have to invade Cuba. So shortly after the plane takes off from Love Field going back to Washington, D.C., the White House Situation Room informs President Johnson that Lee Oswald has been arrested and there is no conspiracy, and the members of JFK's staff who were in Dealey Plaza are told that Oswald is to be designated as the lone assassin, even though he will not be charged for this for another nine hours. How would the White House Situation Room, at 1.30 in the afternoon central time, Oswald's only been in jail for maybe less than an hour, how would the White House Situation Room already know that there was no conspiracy? Now, Lyndon Johnson did an interview with Walter Cronkite a couple years after the assassination, and a lot of this interview, of course, was never released until Lyndon Johnson died. And Cronkite asked some interesting questions. He doesn't tell you why he's asking the questions, but he's got some interesting questions. And he asked Lyndon Johnson, Was the arrangement of the movement of President Kennedy's body in Washington a surprise to you? Lyndon Johnson, yes. Myself, Robert Kennedy, and Mrs. Kennedy were supposed to stay with the body until it was put in the hearse. We were not allowed to do this. Cronkite, do you know who made this decision? Lyndon Johnson, no. No. Now, Lyndon Johnson's first few hours as president were probably the most critical in the history of this country. We've had other presidents assassinate and die in office, but we never had the threat of nuclear war behind it. And there were people in the military who wanted a war with Russia, and they were willing to use this as an excuse. In June 1961, the Joint Chiefs of Staff submitted a plan to President Kennedy For a surprise nuclear attack against the Soviet Union. They tell Kennedy, we know where all their missile sites are. We can take them out. And Kennedy says, well, how many Russians would this kill? They answer, 140 million. And Kennedy asks, well, if they get one missile off, how many Americans would be killed? 20 to 30 million. And Kennedy says, you call yourselves human beings? He said, I ought to fire every one of you sons of bitches. He said, but I can't because this would get out. And one of the generals says to Kennedy, don't you understand? If there's two Americans and one Russian left, we win. Uh, Fortunately for us, Kennedy didn't go with that scenario. So the CIA had come out with this hokey-ass story that a month before the assassination, Lee Oswald went to Mexico, and he met with a Russian KGB agent in Mexico City, and this KGB agent was in charge of political assassinations. And, of course, the CIA says, we have this picture of Oswald. We have his picture of him there. And, of course, we can't show it to you. That's because of national security. And the picture wasn't seen until 1975. I, of course, have a copy of the picture. J. Edgar Hoover had a copy of the picture on November 22, 1963. And this is what he tells President Johnson. This is a recorded telephone conversation. President Johnson, have you established any more about the visit to the Soviet embassy in Mexico in September? J. Edgar Hoover, no, that's one angle that's very confusing for this reason. We have up here the tape and the photograph of the man who was at the Soviet embassy using Oswald's name. The picture and the tape do not correspond to this man's voice nor to his appearance. In other words, it appears that there was a second person who was at the Soviet embassy impersonating Oswald. And I have the picture here right in front of me, and this is probably one of the most ridiculous aspects of this whole thing. Lee Oswald was 24 years old. He was about 5'10", and he weighed about 160 pounds. The man in this picture is balding. He's probably 35 to 40 years old, and he probably weighs 230 pounds. Now, this Oswald... Mexico City issue, this is one of the strangest parts of this whole case. And there are books written just on this subject. Was he there? Was he not there? And if they had a picture of him, that would be overwhelming evidence against Oswald. But of course, they don't have a picture of him. And there are different opinions on this. I believe this was a totally different operation using Oswald's identity, which they've been doing since 1960, and this operation was blown because of the assassination, and they couldn't let the picture be seen because it would blow the cover of the operative in the picture and would also signal a relationship between Oswald and the CIA. Now the Russians were absolutely scared to death about this. They think this is going to be blamed on them and that we're going to start bombing them any minute. They sent a man over here to attend President Kennedy's funeral. And he tells Robert Kennedy, we didn't have anything to do with this. And Kennedy tells him, no, we know who was behind this. And this is in the documents from the Russian embassy sent back to Moscow. And of course, nobody saw these documents until the fall of the Soviet Union. And American researchers were allowed to look at the Russian documents pertaining to the assassination. Now, I talked earlier about these generals, the Joint Chiefs, who gave Kennedy this plan for this surprise nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. And one of these generals is a man named Curtis LeMay. He's the head of the Air Force. He's on the Joint Chiefs. And he's called the Mad Bomber. And the reason of this is that during World War II, this is the man that came up with a plan for the bombing of Tokyo. And most people don't know this. The bombing of Tokyo killed more people than the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And why is that? Because Tokyo was primarily a wooden city. Most of the buildings were wood. And they bombed Tokyo and they used napalm. And this set the entire city of Tokyo on fire. Now in the late 1950s, this General LeMay, he sends a squadron of U.S. nuclear bombers towards the Soviet Union. And when they're picked up on radar by the Soviets, the planes turn around and come back. And he was asked by a reporter, are you deliberately trying to start World War III? And his answer, yes. So now we get to this telephone conversation between Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover on the morning of November the 23rd. And one of the interesting things about this is that there's 14 and a half minutes missing. There's a gap. Just like in the Watergate tapes, there's 14 and a half minutes that have been erased. But this is a very interesting conversation. President Johnson, how many shots were fired? Hoover, three. Johnson, any of them fired at me? Hoover, no, all three at the president. The president was hit by the first and third shot. The second shot hit Conley. Stop right there. So Hoover now, he's either seen the Zapruder film or he's been told... What's on it, and he's saying exactly what Conley said, that Conley and Kennedy were not hit by the same bullet. But Of course, they have to be hit by the same bullet. What they haven't realized yet is that the shot that has missed Lyndon Johnson. So they were only shooting at the president, Hoover. Yes, three shots in three seconds. Despite what's being said in some newspapers that no one could have fired that quickly, we have already proven that this is possible. So Hoover is outright lying to Lyndon Johnson here because in nowhere in any of these reports were anybody able, any of these rifle experts were able to fire this clanky bolt-action rifle in under six to eight seconds. And again, when they did it, they were not shooting at moving targets. Warren Commission testimony of Robert Foster, top firearms expert for the FBI. How long did it take to fire the weapon? It took 9, 8, and 6 seconds, and all the shots were high and to the right. Could you get the firing down to 6 seconds? Yes, we could work the bolt that fast, but the faster we fired, the less accurate it became. Question, at what distance were the firings conducted? Foster, 15 yards. Question, 15 yards? Foster, yes, the weapon was inaccurate past 15 yards. So J. Edgar Hoover is totally lying to Lyndon Johnson about the shots fired in three seconds. Not possible with this piece of crap weapon. Now Johnson asks Hoover, Who is Alex Hydell? This was an alias that was used by this man. We have, of course, charged him with the murder of the president. We believe he carried the rifle into the building, but we cannot prove that. It seems almost impossible to think that a $12 rifle You could kill the president. No one knows this. The case as it stands now is not strong enough to get a conviction. So there it is. He just told Lyndon Johnson that there is not enough evidence to convict Oswald. Right there it is. 11 p.m. November 22, 1963. Captain Will Fritz, Chief of Detectives, Dallas, Texas. Gets a person to person call from Lyndon Johnson. Johnson tells Fritz, Stop the investigation. You have your man. Fritz then makes the following statement Oswald, very cooperative, but he's admitted nothing. But without going into the evidence, this case is cinched. Saturday afternoon, November 23rd, Captain Fritz gets another call. This time it's from J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI. Hoover asks about the security for moving Oswald from the county jail to the city jail. Hoover tells Captain Fritz, Don't let anything happen to this boy. If you do, we'll never hear the end of this. Sunday morning, November 24th, 11 a.m., Lee Oswald is being transferred from the county jail to the city jail. He's let out in front of the photographers and the newspeople. No police officer in front of him. Not an FBI officer in sight. And he's gunned down by Jack Ruby. Oswald is taken to Parkland Hospital, the same hospital where President Kennedy was, and he's rushed into emergency surgery. There's a doctor there named Dr. Charles Crenshaw. He's a 22-year-old surgical resident. He was there on Friday when they brought President Kennedy in, and now he's in the same room with Lee Oswald. And as they take Oswald into the operating room, an FBI agent with a gun on his side runs into the operating room. Phyllis Bartlett, the chief operator of the Dallas County Hospital switchboard, Miss Bartlett answers a call from a man speaking in a loud voice and identifying himself as President Johnson. He demanded to speak with someone now present in the operating room with Oswald. Dr. Crenshaw is in the emergency surgery room with Lee Oswald. They're trying to save Oswald's life. He's been shot in the abdomen and his pancreas and liver both have mostly been destroyed. He's suffering tremendous blood loss, but he's still alive at this point. A nurse comes in, taps Crenshaw on the shoulder, and tells him he has a phone call. Dr. Crenshaw, I looked at her like she had lost her mind. She says, no, you need to take this. Crenshaw leaves the OR and picks up the phone. This is Dr. Crenshaw. Dr. Crenshaw, this is Lyndon Johnson, President of the United States. How's Oswald doing? Crenshaw, he's holding his own at the moment. Johnson, Dr. Crenshaw, I want a deathbed confession from Oswald. There is a man in the room who will take the statement. I expect full cooperation. Do you understand? Crenshaw, yes, sir. And he hangs up the phone. By the time Crenshaw gets back to the operating room, Oswald, due to the loss of blood, has gone into cardiac arrest. He dies a few minutes later. There will be no deathbed confession. Dallas Neurosurgeon Philip Earl Williams, also in the room with Lee Oswald. That Crenshaw left the room during the attempts to save Oswald, and he was told by a nurse that there was a call on the line from the White House. Was it really Lyndon Johnson that made this call or someone impersonating? The switchboard operator said it came from the White House, and we know the FBI agent was in the room. Why would they do this? They need this. Remember what Hoover told Johnson. There's not enough to convict Oswald. If they could just get Oswald to admit to this, then this is over and it all goes away. But of course, Oswald never speaks. He's never able to speak. He's almost dead when they get him in there. If the FBI agent in the room asks Oswald, did you shoot the president? And he shakes his head. That's all they need. But Oswald's comatose. And it never happens. Mrs. Bartlett, the phone operator, she never knew who took the call. All she did was transfer the call to the nurse's station. And the nurse went in and got Dr. Crenshaw. So now Johnson's got to make a decision. Oswald's dead. The Attorney General of Texas is telling people he's going to start his own investigation. And they're talking about the House and the Senate doing their own investigation. November 25, 1963, memo to Bill Moyers. Bill Moyers is Lyndon Johnson's chief of staff, and this is from Assistant Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach. The public must be satisfied that Oswald was the assassin, that he did not have Confederates who are still at large, and that the evidence was such that he would have been convicted at trial. The matter has been handled thus far with neither dignity or conviction. We can scarcely let the world see us totally in the image of the Dallas police when our president has been murdered. So now they have to get this under control and stop these other investigations. That's when Lyndon Johnson gets on the phone and he calls Earl Warren and he tells Earl Warren, I want you to head this investigation. We have to cut these other things off and I want you to do this. And Earl Warren says, absolutely not, because Earl Warren knows this is a trap. And he wants nothing to do with this. Johnson tells him, now you put the uniform on once to save America, you're going to have to save America again. Why? Lee Oswald did this. He acted alone. Why why does this have to save America? Then he gets on the phone with Senator Richard Russell from Georgia, and he tells Russell he wants him on the committee. And Russell says, absolutely not. I will not serve on any committee with Earl Warren. I hate that man. And Lyndon Johnson says, now you listen to me. I'm the goddamn President of the United States. You will do what I tell you to do. Or otherwise, when I get finished with you, you won't be able to be elected dog catcher. Do you understand? Richard Russell. Yes, Mr. President. And that's how the Warren Commission was formed. With threats and intimidation from Lyndon Johnson, the President of the United States. Later on, as the Commission is finishing its report... Richard Russell gets another call from the president. Why? Because he refuses to sign the Warren Commission report. Lyndon Johnson, why won't you sign the report? Russell, because I do not believe Kennedy and Connolly could have been hit with the same bullet. Lyndon Johnson, I don't either. But you've got to sign the report. Four days after taking office, President Johnson signs National Security Memorandum Number 273, overriding the memorandum number 263 that President Kennedy had signed in October starting the withdrawal of the first 1,000 U.S. troops from Vietnam. National Security memorandum number 273 signed by Lyndon Johnson includes Op Plan 37, a CIA plan for raids and sabotage inside North Vietnam. There's your Vietnam War, folks. This is what leads to the Gulf of Tonkin, and this is what leads to the Vietnam War. What did Lyndon Johnson say? Just get me reelected. You can have your damn war. So, what to think about all this? Well, as I said in the beginning, have no knowledge or information that Lyndon Johnson knew about this ahead of time. But what we do know, Lyndon Johnson is guilty of conspiracy after the fact in the murder of President Kennedy, and he's guilty of obstruction of justice. Well, I hope you have enjoyed this episode, and on our next episode, I'm going to talk about an incident that I saw in one of these conferences in Dallas. I saw this woman get up in this man's face, and she said, how dare you accuse my father of being in on a conspiracy to kill President Kennedy, and the woman, uh, they had to separate these two, and that will be what we talk about on our next episode. Well, it's shout-out time, folks. You know we got them. I got to give a shout-out to my sister Rhonda and Hannah for coming by this weekend, and we're working on some new things. Uh, Two weeks from today, folks, August 8th, my new podcast. It's called The Chattered 60s. Check that out. When you see this logo, you're going to be blown away. Logos by Krista, Krista Jones, and when she first showed it to me, she said, oh, let me show you this one. And as soon as I saw it, I said, that's it. Don't have to see any more. That's the one. We got Greenville, Kentucky. Oh, we got a new country, folks, Madrid, Spain. Thank you, folks. Olathe, Kansas, Vale, North Carolina, Deer Park, Texas. Our friends in the UK, Germany, Belgium, Australia, New Zealand. And I got to give a shout out to Patty and Debbie. They're over on their tour of the UK. Looks like they're having a great time. I wish I was there, but I got to stay here and do this. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you next time, folks.